This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, a Palestinian village that resists military occupation and its most renowned citizen. A conversation with one of Canada's most distinguished ecologists. And an online game that lets you do more than just procrastinate. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm Dave Kattenberg. It's the first word that comes to my mind gazing south of the border at U.S. President Donald Trump. Amazing that a guy like Donald Trump could be handed what some say is the biggest and most important job in the world, a man of such limited language skills, the antithesis of presidential demeanor, zero gravitas, boorish, vulgar, racist, misogynist, a self-professed serial abuser. But Americans voted the guy in. Yes, sure, more people voted for Hillary than for Donald, but the very real human beings in the Electoral College who could have voted their conscience boldly and bravely cast their vote for Trump instead, thereby placing him in the White House. Not the sort of act one imagines the Founding Fathers would have advised. Thirty years into its third century, the American Republic definitely seems to be going through hard times. Gazing upon all this from inside another glass house, north of the border, one may well question the vitality and strength of Canadian political culture with its telegenic, far more intellectually capable young leader at the helm. Judging from the Trudeau government's response to what appears to be grave ecospheric crisis, melting Arctic, expanding dead zones in plastic-strewn oceans, decimation of pollinators and bird populations, global surge of pathogenic superbugs, it's not immediately evident young Trudeau thinks anything's terribly wrong. Is he up to the job? There are no leaders, which, following up on the whole Obama experience, suggests something worse than just amazing. Things are worrisome. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm Dave Kattenberg. Hello, Dave, hello. As that evening, same been gone. Hello, hello, baby, hello. Yeah, and I stood at your station, watched my baby leaving town. Blue and disgusted, nowhere could peace be found. But hello. Ah, hello. 
Blackwell, How Long, How Long Blues, Carr on Piano, of course, Blackwell on Guitar. Leroy Carr and Scrapper Blackwell's late 20s, early 30s recordings were hugely popular and influential. How Long, How Long Blues, recorded for Vocalion in Indianapolis in the summer of 1928, went on to become a standard. Ninety years later, it still is. Now that's amazing. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. It's a David and Goliath struggle with a twist. Instead of a powerful young man taking on some big brute who's never taken a fall, this is a story of a mighty 16-year-old girl and her tiny village, dispossessed, occupied, and oppressed by one of the most powerful military forces in the world that resist. No one has become more emblematic of this little struggle going on in Nabi Saleh and the larger Palestinian struggle for self-determination than young Ahed Tamimi. 16-year-old Ahed was arrested by Israeli soldiers on the night of December 19th without charge following an incident that's gone viral in which she kicked and slapped an Israeli soldier who had entered her family's property and was refusing to leave. Ahed now faces a host of charges, including assaulting a soldier and interfering with military operations. Ahed Tamimi and her family, the village of Nabi Saleh, are renowned for their weekly popular protests, routinely greeted with gas grenades, high-velocity tear gas canisters, noxious, sewage-smelling fluid called skunk, rubber bullets, and live rounds, two members of Ahed's family have been killed in the course of protests. Days before the slapping incident, Ahed's 15-year-old cousin had received a rubber bullet in his face. He's now recovering. I attended one of Nabi Saleh's Friday protests last spring. I spoke with Ahed Tamimi and her uncle and aunt, Bilal and Manal. Tell me uh, who you are. Uh, I'm Ahed Tamimi from Nabi Saleh. And you're a brave young woman. You're powerful. Thank you. I, I have... You were getting very angry at the soldiers. 
Uh, because they want uh, to shoot the people in the administration, and uh, we have to be strong because we are. If we are not like this, they will kill us, and uh, they will uh, destroy our land, arrested us, and all. How old are you, Ahed? I'm 16 years old. 16, and you're. You've been doing this for how long? Uh, from seven years, like that. And do you feel you are accomplishing something? Is it is it changing? Yeah, that's no uh, I when I go to that administration. When I get to the administration, I feel I'm more strong and uh, they give me some strong food. It empowers you. Going to the demonstration yes, makes uh, you feel strong. Yes. And where do you go to school? Uh, when? You, you go to school uh, in Nabi Saleh? No, in Ramallah. And, but I was watching you facing the soldiers and you were you were in their face you were the soldiers you were um, are you not scared I'm not scared because if I, if I don't go and tell the soldiers go from our land and uh, they will kill us and they will come to the village and they and shoot the house they will do a lot of things to kill us or make us not happy. I don't know what. Thank you very much. Welcome. My name is Bilal Tamimi. Uh, mainly I am a government uh, employee. I work in Ministry of Education. Uh, but uh, because I have uh, a hobby for uh, taking pictures and uh, filming, uh, since what began to happen in the village in the end of 2009, uh, while the settlers, you can see the settlement from my windows here. Halamish. Halamish, yes. Uh, the, uh, this settlement is here since they decided to establish it in uh, 76 uh, and in 77. Uh, uh, I began, uh, as I told you, uh, this settlement began to uh, here and it began to expand con in continuous expanding. It was continuous expanding since they established the settlement. But what happened in the end of 2009 that they, the settlers took a small spring in the valley between the village and the settlement. And you can say that was the, the flame for beginning our resistance against the settlement and against the occupation and all. Because we know that it's not the reason for our suffering is only this settlement. If I need to go to Ramallah in my daily work, I had to go through uh, some checkpoints. And many times, instead of taking me 30 to 40 minutes to be in my work. Sometimes it took me two hours or more. You work in Ramallah? I work in Ramallah, yes. Uh, 
but as I told you, what's happened here in the end of 2009, that these set, the settlers want to take uh, a small spring in the valley, and we decide to begin our resistance or our weekly demonstration in that time uh, against the thifting of the land from the settlers and what's happening for the people uh, in uh, this area. And the land above the spring, between the, the road and Halamish, there, there's a hillside with olive trees. Are those olive trees? All the land which is Halmish settlement is is belong most of it belong to the people of Nabi Saleh. A part of it is belong to uh, other village called Der Nidam. Uh, but here in Nabi Saleh, we are one family. The same thing for Der Nidam, they belong to the same family. And those olive trees, those are producing olive trees? They produce olives? Uh, produce olives, yes. Uh, here in uh, Palestine, you can say most of the people is depending of uh, for the olive harvest uh, to produce olive and uh, oil. and uh, So it is one of the main uh, economic uh, thing in Palestine for the Palestinians here. So who, who harvests those olive trees between the road and Halamish? Of course the settlers. Of course now it's not allowed for any Palestinians to go to the other side of the street. In any time if you try to go to that uh, area, immediately the settlers will go down and the army will come and uh, uh, ask you to leave or uh, they will not ask you they will push you to leave to leave that area and do, do does the village of Nabi Saleh have actual written title over that land Enti written title uh, this is the or problem is it, or is it uh, traditional ownership it is exactly because uh, here as I told you Palestine is almost under occupation, so it was the British mandate, and before that the Ottoman uh, period, and so it was difficult to uh, be written uh, as that it is ownership for uh, any person. But uh, in the Ottoman period, yes, there were uh, most of the Palestinian land. It was uh, documented or uh, written for the owners. Uh, if you go to any uh, part of piece or of land in Halmish uh, and uh, you go to the uh, uh, land department, uh, you will find that the uh, owner is someone from Nabi Saleh or from Der Nidam, the other village. So this is amazing. In Canada, where I'm from, property rights are sacred if you own property if you have title to the property people can't just take your property government maybe can take your property but they have to pay you money we are speaking about occupation we are speaking about uh, dealing with no law if any uh, one of these children you can see that here we have children uh, 14 15 16 years old if he do anything he will be in the jail and he will be charged as any adult any other adult if he's like if he 30 or 40 years old 
Here we are living under no law. It's the occupation law. It is the power law. So uh, we know that many, many people have documents for their land, for their houses, for the. But uh, of course, the Israeli uh, court or the Israeli judgment will give us no right to be in this area, or and we know that. Does the Palestinian Authority help you folks here in Nabi Saleh at all? As I told you, Palestinian Authority is engaged with many bad agreement for the Palestinian Authority. Security uh, cooperation. Uh, security and... Uh, Their job, the, the Palestinian uh, Authority's job, is to protect Halamish. Uh, in some way, maybe. <laughs> in some way, maybe, yes. And uh, as we can see... Uh, it's absurd. What's, uh, what, in what's happening, like, uh, in many places in Beit El, in Ramallah, Palestinian Authority doesn't support the people to do anything, and they, in many cases, they stop them. They're forbidding them to go near Beit El in Ramallah, to go near uh, the settlements in Hebron, in, uh, in Jerusalem, in many places. And, uh, uh, but it's the only occupied people in the world whose job it is to protect the occupier. That's a, I know that it is difficult to understand why does this do that, but I believe in other way that we don't have, the Palestinian Authority don't have any power or any control, and in any minute, the Palestinian president will announce, will announce anything against Israel, uh, he will get what's happened to Yasser Arafat before that. Or they will uh, vanish the Palestinian Authority. How about these young people here? Where in this room there's two, four, two, four, six, eight, ten, maybe a dozen young people ranging from 9 or 10, 12 to 18. How about them? Are they, do they give you hope? Uh, are they, are they, they must be frustrated. We, we have to keep the hope to try to change what's happening here, to let them live a better life than the life we live. Can you introduce yourself? Manal uh, Tamimi, I'm Resident in Nabi Saleh and I'm the advocacy officer for the BECC, Babiola Resistance Coordination Committee. And Nabi Saleh is known known around the world. Your house is decorated with things like tear gas. What, tear gas. What are these metal canisters? It's a high velocity gas canisters, and it's uh, been manufactured in uh, United States by a factory called CTS. So uh, uh, this is the, this kind of canister which killed uh, Mustafa, uh, our cousin. Uh, they shot it from a very close range uh, in the eye, so he lost his uh, life. And also this is another kind of uh, gas canister. They shot it by uh, uh, a gun or by hand. And this is very dangerous because as you see that it contains holes. So one minute, one hole is open. So it goes one direction and suddenly another hole open. So it could come. It, it keep going around uh, um, every time a new hole opened. Um, 
So yeah, they are using different uh, kinds of canisters of live ammunition, of uh, skunk water, uh, steel-coated rubber bullet, in a way to, to stop our protest. And sometimes they come into town and spray the skunk water on, on houses and... Yeah, on, on people, on trees, uh, inside houses. Uh, uh, some people, they had to throw away their furniture because uh, they sprayed the house uh, with the skunk water and they couldn't remove the smell, so they had to throw the furniture away. So, it's a foolish question, but what, what gives you the strength to continue? Our belief. In spite of, you've been doing this for many Fridays in a row and not uh, much has changed. Our belief, our hopes our dreams, to have a, a better future for the children. Uh, actually, we don't have any kind of weapons. We don't have tanks, we don't have planes, um, uh, we don't have uh, uh, even the, the Arab world support. Uh, the whole world, in hidden way, they are uh, supporting Israel, they give them weapons, they give them everything they want. So actually we are alone as a Palestinian. Um, so the thing we are having is our belief in our rights, in, in our existence, in our lands. And this belief is, strength, is strengthening us all the time. Uh, it gives us the power, the hope to see these children become adult in a very, uh, or to live in a secure environment, or to become adult with the, uh, uh, the best career, the best future, the best. All these things is our our uh, weapons. Uh, I think it's not about if you have. Um, M16 or what, it's about if you believe in what you are doing. And we believe, that's why we are uh, stronger than the Israeli, because they don't believe or they, they don't have a faith in their country and their, they, they think that their weapon is their power uh, and this is not true. So that's why we are keep resisting all the time. Uh, doesn't matter what what the, the risks or what the, uh, the price for this resistance or the, the sequences or we we are keep uh, moving. Thank you very much. You are so welcome. <laughs> Bilal and Manal Tamimi are residents of the village of Nabi Saleh in Israeli-occupied Palestine. Their niece Ahed is currently in Israeli detention, charged with assaulting an Israeli soldier and interfering with Israel's military occupation. She will almost certainly be convicted and receive a lengthy jail sentence. Some 700 children and youth are currently in Israeli detention. According to Defense of Children International, they are typically mistreated. Read more about this at www.greenplanetmonitor.net. This is Viet Cong Blues, Junior Wells and his Chicago blues band. I woke up early this morning. I was feeling kind of blue. My landlady saw you got a little boy. And I began to sing the blues. It was from my brother. Don't you know the boy's laying down in 
Fight, baby, but Lord knows you think you're right, but you gotta be wrong, though. You hear me? You got to be wrong. Now pick up. You wake up early in the morning, baby, and you don't have nothing to eat. You can't buy yourself no clothes, baby. Can you meet my brothers in Vietnam? People, don't you know that's why I'm singing these blues? You might not have no respect for your country, darling, but that's why, that's why I'm. Singing these blues. You better pick up, baby, and get with it. You hear me? Look at All the wives, all the fathers that have sons and they're not, any. This is you, always. All of my got done mind. Lord, I'm gonna wake up early in the morning. People, I'm about to go out of my got done It's so sad to think about your people <laughs> loving when the other man thinks they're wrong. You're not right, baby. Here it is, just before I go. Yeah, mama, this morning you're gonna look up, you're gonna look up and find yourself gone. Morning, you're gonna look up and find yourself gone. How would you feel if it was your brother over there? Huh? How would you feel? Lord, then you're gonna ask the good Lord to forgive you. Please forgive me for my sins. 
Viet Cong Blues, Junior Wells and his Chicago Blues Band, Junior Wells on harmonica and vocals, Buddy Guy on guitar, Jack Myers on bass, and Fred Bello on drums, a classic band. Another scary report in the news recently, insect populations are falling a report last October from Germany regarding a 75% drop in flying insect abundance over the past 30 years and a more recent 15% drop in bird populations. Pollinators, including insects of various sorts and bats, seem to be taking a major hit. Given the huge role of pollinators in terrestrial ecosystems and human food production, decimation of the pollinators is scary. I spoke with William Rees, Professor Emeritus at the University of British Columbia. Rees is the originator of the concept of ecological footprints. Is the notion of ecological or ecological economics uh, an oxymoron? It, it certainly seems to be so in the form of economics that, that are conventional. Conventional economics seem anything but ecological. Can you comment? Yeah, of course I can, because you're absolutely right. People are unaware of this, and I think it's one of the great foolishnesses of, of humankind. But we are currently flying planet Earth, if you want to think of it as a great ship, a spaceship, using a form of economics called neoliberal economics, which makes no reference whatsoever to the major biophysical systems that maintain um, life support on the planet. So it's as if we're trying to fly, you know, the spaceship Enterprise with a 1955 a Volkswagen uh, Beetle driver's manual. I've written about this somewhere else. So we're using the most incredibly naive economic models to govern our relationship, not only with the ecosphere or the biosphere, but even with society. So neoliberal economic models are such simplified abstractions of reality that they make no useful reference whatsoever with ecological systems, the climate system, or a variety of other life support systems. And they are really a very pale representation of actual human behavior. And of course, again, there's no reference to the structural dimensions of society, the ideas of community, family, or anything else that, that hold us together as human beings. And so what intelligent species would try to govern most of its affairs with a model so utterly bereft of any useful touchstones with the real world systems with which the economy interacts in the real world? So the economy, uh, ecology or the environment, I hate the word environment, it's the ecosphere, uh, but uh, ecology, uh, economics and society are utterly inextricably intertwined and yet the main models we're using aren't ecological, they're not sociological, uh, they are economic, and these economic models make almost no useful reference to the real behaviors of either ecosystems or social systems. And the most fundamental article of faith in conventional economics is that growth growth can go on forever. And I was just reading, uh, which of course it can't in a closed system, and I was just reading some recent articles by Joseph Stiglitz, who is, a, I think, a progressively-minded economist uh, who understands the foibles of conventional economics, but even he talks about sustainable growth. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a 
a catch-all term. Uh, yes, Stiglitz is a progressive economist, and yes, he, like other progressive economists, still does uh, talk about sustainable growth. Let's be clear. Growth is a very uh, difficult concept to pin down. When an ecologist hears growth, he tends to think of growth in populations, uh, growth in material throughput, that is to say, growth in the rates of exploitation and uh, utilization of energy and material resources, and therefore growth in waste and so on and so forth. Economists don't hear that when they hear growth. Economists hear growth in GDP. They hear growth in per capita income, for example. Now, income, if you think of a dollar bill, it doesn't occupy any more space or take up any more resources than a, a billion dollar bill. So money is an abstraction that has no physical uh, reality. And so you can talk about the growth of income as an abstraction ad infinitum. And in theory, if that's all it was, income growing with no uh, subsequent material consequences, then indeed the economist is right. Growth can go on forever. Uh, the regrettable part is, and the reality we have to deal with is, that growth has never, in income rather, growth in GDP has never been dissociated with growth in material consumption. That is to say, the use of energy and material resources and therefore the output of pollution. Never in history has that been the case, including right now, despite some recent economic modeling based on faulty accounting that suggests that something called dematerialization is taking place. So we're in a bit of a fix here in that, yes, it's possible theoretically for income growth to continue indefinitely. The reality is, though, that invariably means material growth will accompany it. And that, of course, is what's destroying the planet right now. Uh, the other hook here is that even if growth in the material sense were to cease in the first world, something like two-thirds to three-quarters of the world's present population have not had their basic material needs adequately met. Uh, we still have uh, you know, two or three billion people in abject poverty living on less than uh, $3 a day. And so if we were to grow them up to, say, European uh, material standards, we'd need a couple of additional planet Earths, or the physical equivalent thereof. And that doesn't even account for the expected additional, say, 2 billion people that uh, may uh, arrive at the human dining table over the next uh, half century or so. So unfortunately, growth is a confusing thing. Uh, in theory, money growth could grow forever but it's always been accompanied by material growth. That's killing the planet. And if we grow even the present population to a satisfactory material standard, it, it essentially means the destruction of much of what's left of the ecosphere. Bill Rees, how, how do you explain the fact that such intelligent people as Joseph Stiglitz and many others who fully understand that Earth is a closed system, that resources are not finite and that you know, waste dumps are not infinitely proportioned, that they can still talk about just continuous, never-ending growth. And all the while knowing knowing that, you know, plastics are everywhere on the surface of the earth and on the bottom of the ocean, and that, you know, we're polluting the atmosphere. And anybody with a even a minor bit of common sense understands you you just can't continue to do this ad infinitum, and yet they continue to talk about it. Well, we could spend all day just on that question, and there are many different answers to it. One is just wishful thinking. Uh, we have, let's back up just a little bit. 
we have seen, believe it or not, only about 200 years of economic growth. Um, up until about the, you know, the 19th century, growth was negligible. Uh, in the 19th century, something happened. Basically, it was the discovery of how to use fossil fuel uh, to grow our extraction of all other resources and to supply a growing industrial base. So we've seen about 200 years of exponential growth. And believe it or not, it took until the late 1940s or early 1950s for people really to realize that this was happening. It wasn't until just over a half a century ago that any government began to talk about growth as a necessary element of, say, the national uh, economic future. So growth has been with us only for a couple of centuries, which is a fraction of 1% of all of human history. And so we've grown up for the last six, seven, or eight generations in a unique period of human history. But that's a sufficiently long time for people to think of growth as the norm. And of course, we started from a point of an essentially empty planet, uh, fewer than a billion people in 1800. And so today we've, we've blown up to almost 8 billion people this year, an enormous increase in population, a 100 or more fold increase in the scale of the economy, a 25 fold or so increase in incomes in, in rich countries. And we take this to be the norm because it's the baseline to which the last few generations have referenced. So one of the reasons people think growth can carry on forever is because it's all anybody alive today and for several generations has ever remembered. And we've become utterly dependent upon it. Most of our financial institutions, uh, pension plans and so on, assume that growth can continue. And hence, we've developed in just the last few generations a kind of addiction to a very short-term phenomenon, but one from which it's almost impossible to break away without changing everything in our culture and society. And of course, people are always more reluctant to give up something uh, than to forego getting it if they don't already have it. So we're in a situation where almost nobody is willing to face the biophysical reality that the planet has filled up. It's taken us about 200 years to fill up. In fact, overflow. We're in a state of gross, uh, what we call in ecological footprint analysis, gross overshoot. We are currently using even the biophysically self-renewing resources of, of the planet faster than they, they, than they can regenerate. So we are literally liquidating, that is to say, turning into money wealth, the real wealth, the bioproductive wealth that is absolutely essential for the continuation of society. So the point is, and we're addicted to this, and, even, and most economists who grew up in, in economics departments that are dedicated utterly to the proposition of infinite growth, uh, and hence we can't think of anything else. Now, there's other reasons for it. One is technological efficiency. And one of the prevailing economic myths is that as we get more and more efficient, growth will have less and less impact. So, for example, supposing we doubled energy efficiency, then we could double the scale of the economy, double the amount of consumption of energy, or at least of, of goods and services, without having a greater economic impact. Supposing you could double, uh, double the efficiency with which we use materials then either we could retain our present population and have twice as much stuff because it's produced more efficiently, or we could double the population and have the same 
material standard without increasing the impact. So if you believe, and of course this is historically true, that we have been getting more and more efficient in the use of energy and material resources, and if you extrapolate those trends to their logical conclusion, you can see a situation in which growth can continue for some extended period of time without increasing, and in fact if you manage it properly, even decreasing the impact on the environment. But again, in reality, this isn't happening to nearly the extent that people uh, wished it were. For example, we were hearing it just a year ago that carbon emissions are down, which suggests that we're weaning ourselves from fossil fuels. Well, for the last year or so, they're up again because, um, as we say, as we know, in order to satisfy the basic material needs of the growing billions of people in the developing countries whose economies are uh, growing at 3 and 5% per year, that there will be vastly more consumption and even with more efficient technologies the simple reality is that the rates of growth both in population and per capita income and of course consumption is a combination of those two things these things are increasing more quickly than is the increase in efficiency so the total material throughput of the economy the use of energy and material and the production of pollution is increasing faster than the efficiency can defeat the situation and the astonishing thing is that humans have um, appropriated an estimated 40% of Earth's total photosynthetic capacity. And, and so, like, almost like, almost like 98.5% of the total mammalian biomass is human and, and uh, human livestock. That's right. Human beings... Um, again, we're not consciously aware of this because we are so now removed from direct contact with the ecosystems that support us. I mean, people living in cities have no real idea of their ecological relationships. But the simple reality is this. You mentioned earlier that we live on a finite planet. Well, we live on a finite planet with, uh, you know, hundreds, uh, not hundreds, but certainly millions of other species. And we're in direct competition with them for the photosynthetic flows through the ecosphere. All of life is supported by photosynthetic energy, the products of plant photosynthesis. So the simple fact of the matter is that the more there are of humans and the more per capita we take and the more domestic animals we have to increase our take from the ecosphere, the less is available to the rest of nature. So the growth of the human enterprise in pure, pure biophysical terms absolutely demands that the rest of nature shrink. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So we've seen humans go from fewer than 1% of mammalian biomass just 10,000 years ago to the point where humans are now something like 34% of all mammalian biomass on the planet. And if we add in the domestic animals, as you say, this goes up to about 98.5%. By the way, it's Vaclav Smil at the University of Manitoba who's worked out these, these kinds of numbers. But the point is, humans are in direct competition with other organisms for the limited photosynthetic flow through Earth. And as a result, we're seeing dramatic falls, collapses in the populations of large mammals just about everywhere, in birds, even insects around the earth now are in decline as humans displace them from habitat, as we poison their food sources with the pesticides that we use to grow, well, to keep them out of the food that we want. So again, all of these things are direct 
evidence, the poisoning of our own food stocks to keep insect competitors away, for example, our overexploitation of the sea, our depletion of uh, the landscape of large mammals as we encroach on their habitats. All of this is direct evidence of what I call the competitive displacement of non-human life by the increase in the uh, human enterprise. I, I've heard, I, I think, probably every politician in this country and in many other countries, say that there's no necessary conflict between the environment and the growth of the economy. This is sheer, utter nonsense. It's simple biophysical ignorance. There is an absolute contradiction everywhere and anywhere between the growth in the scale of the human economy, that is to say, in the material economy, and other non-living species. And we're seeing not only are humans displacing other species, we're now beginning to see, and I guess for some time have seen, the displacement of humans by rich humans. So more and more, as we see an increasing global disparity in income, as the rich get richer and richer, the access to all the world's resources through market forces as we globalize means that they are displacing poorer people from access to resources needed to sustain them. It used to be we just did this through trade. So Europe got rich by exploiting Africa, the Americas, and so on. And now it's, it's being seen through the direct displacement of people from the landscapes that used to support them. Uh, them. So what we're seeing is, is a phenomenon that the United Nations and other international organizations refer to as land grabbing, whereby rich countries are able to literally purchase or uh, lease on a long-term basis millions of hectares of productive land in less developed countries. And then they use that land to ship food and fiber products back home for consumption. So China, Saudi Arabia, uh, South Korea, and, and the list goes on have literally purchased the land base out from under uh, millions of people elsewhere in the world. It's beginning to happen here as we lose more and more of our farmland and so on uh, to wealthy people. E even the housing phenomenon in Canada, Vancouver is facing a housing crisis. But it's not because there's a shortage of housing, it's an income problem. Vancouverites have average or below average in incomes on average for Canadians and they can't compete in the global marketplace against the influx of foreign capital. So we're seeing wealthy people elsewhere competitively displace local Vancouverites from the available housing in our local market. So again, no matter where you look, we see evidence that the competitive displacement of non-human species by human beings is now being extended increasingly to the competitive displacement of relatively poor people and indeed the impoverished people of the planet by the rich people who use the marketplace to acquire the resources that we all need for survival. And this can only get worse as resource bases decline, which they will do because consumption is increasing, and income disparities that inequality increases. Inequality is probably the single greatest um, social disruptor that we will see in coming years. There will be revolutions uh, in countries around the world as income disparity increases over the next couple of decades. William Rees is Professor Emeritus of the University of British Columbia's School of Community and Regional Planning. He is the originator and co-developer of Ecological Footprint Analysis. Read more about William Rees and Ecological Economics at greenplanetmonitor.net. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. 
Now how do you do? Hello world Tell me how do you do? Well I wanna shake your hand Cause life to me is something new Happy to be here Tell me when does the sun go down? Tell me when the sun goes down I hear that all your pretty women Do the mess around When the sun goes down You got to start me Mondays But they don't make me sad Oh, you've got to start me Mondays But they don't make me sad Cause when I wake up every morning I think about the good times Ah, the same blues slow down and steals your peace of mind. Yes, they say your blues slow down and steal your peace of mind. Well, I've been up and down, knocked around, but no kind of blues can I find. A hello world, God tell me how I do you do? Hello world. How do you do? Well, I wanna shake your hand Cause life to me is something new Our own world, Mickey Baker Accompanied by Stefan Grossman From the album Blues and Jazz Guitar of Mickey Baker The Kicking Mule label Great album This being the age of the handheld digital device and its host of reportedly ineluctable sequelae, child and youth insomnia, dreadful traffic accidents, wide-scale student cheating, some apps turn out to be useful to society. Philo is one of these. Philo is an online puzzle game with an aim to help medical genomicists drill down into nucleotide sequences linked to rare medical disorders. Turns out, the human eye and quick thumbs can resolve things computer algorithms can't. So, um, I just wanted to introduce you to Philo. Three students sit in front of a laptop in a cafeteria at McGill University in downtown Montreal. A fourth student stands behind them, showing them a new online game. So if you go ahead and click on one of the games to start. No dreadful monsters, vampires, or bloody explosions here. Philo is more scientifically minded than that. Philo is a very different game, and it falls under this platform called Citizen Science, where people and the gamers can actually contribute to research. Paola, Vikram, and Luke are engineering students here at McGill. They enjoy a good online puzzle, especially if it'll help solve life's greatest mystery, how the human genome works. Your goal is to align the sequences of colored blocks in the best way possible. Uh, So you're penalized for every time you have a sequence that doesn't have a color match, and you're also... Uh, penalize every time you have a gap sandwiched between two different nucleotides. Uh, you get points if they do match, and so your goal is to match them in the best way possible. <laughs> well, now we have, looks like a rat. Yeah, we're trying to align two different rats together. Two different rats. Let's just drag everything, drag everything together. Drag everything together because yeah. we want to get rid of the gaps first. 
Although the human genome has been sequenced from end to end, only a fraction does anything obvious. This includes bits of code we humans share with apes, mice, even fruit flies. By lining up all these versions side by side, scientists can spot additions, deletions, or typos in the human version that might trigger cancer, say. This is what Philo does, using colored blocks instead of actual genetic code. To learn to predict what mutations might have an important role, one of the most valuable piece of information we can have is how that that region of the genome has evolved over time uh, between us and chimps and dogs and and uh, mice. And... Mathieu Blanchet is an assistant professor of computer science here at McGill and one of Philo's creators. Because nowadays we have the genomes of all these other species, we can compare uh, what. Uh, one region in the human genome looks like in, the, in these other species. And from this comparison, we can make reasonably good predictions of what the impact of mutations is going to be. But without accurate alignments of these DNA sequences, we can't really do much. So who are we going to visit? Uh, Guillaume Bourque. Guillaume Bourque is uh, the chief bioinformatician at the uh, Montreal Genome Center. So he's uh, seeing a lot of DNA go by and has to handle uh, billions and billions of uh, files of uh, things to analyze. Uh, so he's uh, a busy guy. Bonjour, hello. Okay, so, so my name is Guillaume Bourque. Uh, I work at the McGill and Genome Quebec Innovation Center. We've got many, many platforms that generate tons and tons of data for cancer, for, uh, you know, understanding genetic disease, but also with, you know, broad application in agriculture, environment, and so on. I mean, we have a lot of these high-throughput platforms, and so I'm responsible for the data that comes out of these platforms and then facilitating interpretation of these data sets. Supercomputers do a great job with raw DNA alignments. When it comes to fine-tuning, there's nothing like the human eye. I mean, the computer is not racing to get a better score than his neighbor, competing and getting a good score. And that's where a tool like Philo can come in. It's a way of getting additional user input, trying to see whether these alignments are good in potential regions of interest. Philo is more than a game. It's really um, trying to build a community of people interested in genomics. Jerome Waldespiel was another one of Philo's creators at McGill, and a proud one at that. The development of Philo is more like community development, having the players and and the researcher together and the teachers. is mixing all these uh, people together through Philo to advance research, to advance education, and eventually to have fun too. Try pushing that orange in the first bit to where all the way over to where the green is. And you'll see that it actually ignores the last bit and you'll have a much higher oh, score. Because right. there's three that. matchups right there. You'll actually have three out of all the total matchups. Three and out of four matchups. These don't count as mismatches anymore. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Should okay. we go to the next step? Sure. I think this is the last one. Oh, stage six. It sounds intimidating already. Huddled in front of a laptop in a McGill cafeteria, Paula is clearly hooked. 
usually I'm not very good at playing games, but the moment I started playing it, it was extremely intuitive. I would actually play this in my own free time to even procrastinate for my real studies just for the fun of it. But a round of Philo isn't a waste of time for a 20-year-old Paula. She's contributing to science. I got the chance to play um, Philo just before getting to come here, and I got to solve a code for Alzheimer's, which is actually very interesting for me because Alzheimer's runs in my family as well. And for that reason, I actually want to go and play the game a bit more. It seems like an indirect way to get yourself involved in maybe expanding the research and improving the research process. In exchange for their time and visual intuition, Paola and her fellow students will be cited in future scientific papers simply as Philo users. If you can get at least five matches by using a gap, then it's paid off. Anonymous gamers have solved almost a quarter million Philo puzzles involving a variety of genetically linked disorders. There's every reason to expect their contributions will advance human health. Oh, we're done. We're finished. We, we just cured an unclassified disease. In 2011, players of the online game Foldit resolved the structure of an enzyme that helps the AIDS virus reproduce. It looks like we got a score of 180. The best score was 182, but the average score is 170. Oh, so we okay, so 10 points odds. above the average. For an undisclosed disease, but we can actually, if we wanted to, uh, play a game that is associated with a disease such as cancer or neurological diseases. So if you want to particularly pinpoint one disease specifically, we can actually do that. Learn more about Philo at philo.cs.mcgill.ca. Philo is spelled P-H-Y-L-O. Soon-to-be-released version 3.0 unifies mobile and web function. An additional RNA layer for ribonucleic acid sequencing comes out in the spring. McGill University computer scientist Jerome Valdespuel and his web-developing colleagues have a new game out that lets you unravel the secrets of microscopic life while contributing to research on the human microbiome. It's called Colony B. Check it out. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. Latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at GreenPlanetMonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Tell everyone you know. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW 95.9 FM. We're both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time. Bye-bye.